Are you ready for good talk? Of course you're ready. I'm ready. Chantel's ready in Montreal. Bruce is ready in Scotland. We're ready with a whole list of little things that we want to talk about today. And I'm going to start... I don't know. I, I, I don't think this story got enough attention this week, quite frankly. I mean, it certainly surprised to me. And it was it's another one of those stories where you go like, what the heck is going on in this country? And this is the story about the RCMP setting up new units uh, to protect politicians and some senior bureaucrats, civil servants. And I'm going like, really? This is like Canada. This isn't supposed to happen here. So I want to understand, I want to try and understand this. Try and make some sense for this for me. Bruce, why, why don't you start on the, this week? Why is this happening? How serious is this situation? And why did it suddenly, or why has it suddenly happened to the point where we're having to set up new units to protect people? Yeah, good questions, Peter. I don't think it's sudden. Uh, Let me say that is the first thing. I think we've seen a gradual deterioration in the level of civility in the conversation about politicians among the public and among some commentators. I think a lot of it has to do with um, the internet, with social media, with the uh, addiction to clicks and the kind of what we talked about last week, I think, is the anger economy. Um, so not a particularly new phenomena, but there have been people for some time, including the former clerk of the Privy Council, uh, Michael Wernick, who've been warning that this situation was deteriorating. And I think he was poo-pooed a little bit. Uh, some people thought that his language was a bit over the top. I didn't really think so at the time. I think it was more a case of people wondered where his intervention was coming from and why it was kind of being processed the way that it was, as opposed to in the course of a conversation about public safety or uh, democratic reform or political civility, he's, he almost seemed to kind of just bring it out of left field. And, and, and I don't think it caught a lot of traction in terms of the public policy conversation that it does warrant. I think that the whole question of adding policing to protect uh, politicians and senior bureaucrats is uh, looking at the, what to do about the symptoms rather than what to do about the cause. It's not a bad idea to do it. It's important to do it. Um, And I'm glad that the government took the move that they took. But solving the problem that exists is going to take more than policing the worst behaviors of some people in society or the sense that you have that some people might do that. And I don't really know where the where those solutions start and end, but I do know that one of the things, and I went back and looked at some public opinion data that I gathered a little while ago, and I'll, I'll kind of finish on this point because it really is quite um, it's quite revealing. When uh, Justin Trudeau's critics call him a traitor, when they say Canada under him is a dictatorship, um, that language feels kind of inflammatory and over-the-top to moderate people who are following politics. But it has another effect on people who are not particularly moderate and who maybe follow politics using a different media lens than uh, most people do. Um, uh, The number of people who agree with the proposition that Justin Trudeau is a traitor to Canada uh, in this poll that I did a little while ago is running at 27%. That's a very large number of people. Now, if I break it down between people who self-identify as progressives or conservatives and who live in urban Canada versus rural Canada, the numbers that jump out for me is that urban conservatives, 38% of them think Justin Trudeau is a traitor. Rural conservatives, 55% think Justin Trudeau is a traitor. That word, and and the three of us had this conversation a little while ago about the use of that word traitor. And I remember Chantal saying that is a a very loaded term. And I think that's absolutely right. I think it's only one example of the really harsh things that uh, political opponents and critics, not just the elected people, but 
the people who are kind of in the in the nooks and crannies of the media environment, let me put it that way, they use these harsh terms and a lot of mainstream voters might shrug them off and say, gee, politics is getting pretty wild. Uh, but then there are other people for whom it's almost an invitation or a legitimization of the idea of doing violence to people in politics because you're being told that they're doing violence to your country, that they're uh, undermining the fabric of your society, and uh, more needs to be done to stop them than just the normal democratic processes. So I, I'm worried about it. I think we need to be more worried about it. I'm glad the government took this um, this decision as it relates to the symptoms, but the causes are really where we need to focus too. Chantal? Hey, so on, on the, 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 the physical side of this, i.e. police protection, let's be clear here. If somebody really, really wants to hurt someone, uh, that is going to happen. And they may be deterred just, you know, for but for a while or figure it out differently. But in the same way that even if you protect Parliament Hill to the hilt, if someone really wants to go in there and do something, it's going to happen. And all of us know the area understand all that so you can basically work on deterrence i think what really triggered it is uh, um, the pictures of christian freeland uh, being hassled uh, big time by someone who was twice her size and who actually looked threatening or jockmeet singh being stopped uh, by someone who clearly had not good intentions towards him it's happened to journalists in and around parliament hill and you would be right, I suspect, if you were the RCMP, to conclude that one of the more risky areas for politicians to venture in is not some rural area uh, where the numbers that uh, Bruce talks about are totally real, uh, but in and around the parliamentary precinct. Because that's if you're someone who wants to resort to violence towards a or some politicians, that's where you're going to find them. It's like going fishing. You're not going to pick a lake that's dried up or that maybe has one fish every 10 years. You're going to go where all the fish is, and then you're going to basically be able to figure out what you're doing. Like Bruce, I, I, don't, I think that's not a solution to the problem, but I do notice that uh, the, the political conversation has become more loaded uh, the number of conservatives, and there are some who, but uh, leading conservatives uh, who have explained, for instance, that no, you cannot put Justin Trudeau in jail for treason and replace him with someone else as part of the convoy. You can count them on the fingers of two hands, which is pretty good, 10, but they all got a lot of abuse for it. Uh, make no mistake, conservatives who stand up to that kind of language get as much abuse as liberals who defend Justin Trudeau. So it, it's a, a widespread phenomenon. And I think the only people who can maybe help tone it down are people who are uh, who set the tone. And on that score, I, I, and, and I know I'm not the only one to say this, I have never covered the leader of the official opposition who sets the kind of tone that uh, Pierre Poilievre sets in the House of Commons and outside. I have a very strong stomach for our political shows. I watched the Meech Lake Accord unravel and grown men and women cry. Uh, I sat in the House of Commons the day after the 1995 referendum, and it felt like you were on a roller coaster. That's how tense and bad it was. But what I see watching question period these days is not that kind of heart-wrenching political conversation, which has its place in politics. When there is a big political battle, someone always gets his or her heart broken. That's normal. But the, the insinuations, uh, if people really want to, and I don't advise it because it's not a good way to spend the weekend, go back and look at Wednesday's question period uh, and and the tone of it uh, and, and the way that the leader of the opposition, since Mr. Poiliev alone asked I think 90% of the conservative questions and where it went, which I'm not going to repeat, uh, is it's a new low in setting the political discourse. And it does two things, I believe. It enables extremists 
And you can't walk away and say, I didn't do that. I never told them to do anything violent. After having whipped up that kind of hatred on such a personal basis, but I also suspect that it will backfire uh, on, on leaders who go down that road. Why? Because it turns off people who are not diehard um, conservatives who are into this kind of discourse. And that I include in that many conservatives. I watched the Alberta election. I watched people I'd seen uh, when Peter Lougheed was premier, when Ralph Klein was premier, People who are conservatives, who were born conservative, go out and say, I, su I support Rachel Notley. So there is a section of the right that is taking the discourse in that direction. And I think that the current leadership of the Federal Conservative Party needs to preach by example, by looking at the high road as something other that just the elites should be on because the word high goes with road. Uh, and that's not happening at this point. They're actually, I think, the brain trust around Mr. Poiliev, quite proud of how much money they're raising by rage farming. I do think it's going to come back to haunt them. Okay. Here, here uh, I don't uh, disagree with anything either one of you have said, but I am still puzzled as to how do we, how do we get, how did we get to this point where you hear those kind of numbers like Bruce is talking about? which are huge numbers uh, in support of the use of the word traitor. And one assumes in support of a lot of other words too. Um, and it can't all be vaccines. No, all, it isn't all, all vaccines, but vaccines uh, was like throwing fertilizer on uh, some shoots that were already uh, pretty clearly emerging. I think what happened in the U S around Trump uh was like a very big eye opener for the rest of the world and for some of America into what was actually happening in terms of what people were consuming online and how it had taken over um, the mindset of a very significant proportion, uh, still a minority, uh, but in a, a significant proportion of the most active uh, and energized people in the, in the body politic, not necessarily the most enlightened. Um, in fact, generally uh, misinformed, disinformed, but highly, highly engaged. And if you want a little uh, experiment, Peter, in how to answer your question, I just before we uh, we started uh, the podcast today, I opened up my browser and I typed in Trudeau as traitor. And you see what pops up then, and you see the sources of it, and you see, to your last point, it isn't only that that they're saying. It's a whole lot of other uh, really awful things that are, and, and I, I know there are going to be people saying, well, you're just defending Trudeau. I, I don't really care that it's Trudeau in this case. It doesn't matter to me. It matters to me that this is how politics looks to a, an increasing number of people who use the Internet as the source of their guidance, the intelligence that uh, they consume around politics. And it, and it helps frame their views, and it helps make them feel that the system isn't doing enough to prevent the awful thing from happening caused by the awful person uh, on the other side of the political aisle. And I agree with Chantal that um, it's hard to look at where Pierre Polyev takes that conversation and not come to the conclusion that what he's trying to do is harvest the votes of those people who are not only susceptible uh, to thinking really, really hard thoughts, uh, but um, to sending a message out that says, uh, you know, if you're this outraged, I'm your guy. Let me put it that way. And the more outraged you want to feel, the more entitled to that outrage I want you to know you should feel. It's a very dangerous thing uh, over the long term. And uh, it really would be good if, uh, if, calmer voices who favor the conservative party or have been lifelong conservatives continue to do what they started, what they've been doing a little bit lately, which you know, is the council. Or you know, I, I watched the Chantal refer to the point on Wednesday, which we're not going to discuss the actual content of, um, but you can go back and look at it if you want in question period. It was pretty brutal. It was pretty ugly, bad. 
but in the scene, as Chantel described it, and she's quite correct, you know, there was a lot of cheering on the part of the Conservative caucus, but one person wasn't cheering. One person yeah. wasn't standing. One person wasn't clapping. One person wasn't smiling. The and one name you could have guessed, even if you didn't I think so. know what happened on Wednesday. Yeah, he's been in the news quite a bit in the last month or so, and that's Michael Chong. And he's been in the news for good reason. But he does not play that game. He never has played that game um, uh, of, of belittling, and more than belittling, you know, disgracing other people. Um, he wasn't, and that was telling. It was almost, it was worth more than the images of all the stuff going on around, around him. Um, anyway, uh, Chantal, last point on this before we move on. Okay, I, we should point out that what we see when we watch question period, as we do on screens, is not the entire conservative bench. So it is possible that others uh, also didn't feel that uh, Mr. Poiliev was doing, uh, uh, was on his, uh, his best behavior. Uh, but that, and it is also useful to remind ourselves that uh, Brian Mulroney and Stephen Harper, to name two previous conservative prime ministers, came in for a hell of a lot of abuse uh, at about the same time in their tenure. Uh, you couldn't you can go anywhere without hearing terrible things about Stephen Harper over the last two years. But they were they were they were less personal and violent, but they were heartfelt. But in the case of yes. Brian Mulroney, does anyone remember that the uh, shameful contest uh, about who would deflower his teenage daughter? That happened. Yep. But that happened. when that happened, the entire political class didn't sit back and say, well, he asked for it because he shows off his family. The entire political class said that is totally unacceptable and can't be happening. So yep. bad things have happened in the past. I think we're seeing more of them. Not It's social media, but it's also that there has been more empowerment. And I'll give you an example. It's not a federal example. Uh, during the debate on the Quebec Charter of Values some years ago when the Parti Québécois was in power, the minister in charge, Bernard Drainville, a former Radio-Canada journalist and colleague of mine, was doing an open line radio show and a woman called and she said, I thank you, uh, Mr. Drainville, for doing this because otherwise uh, Quebec is, become, is going to become all Muslim and Islamized and will live under this uh, this religion, and I was stunned because his answer was, you're right. Well, there was a time when the answer would have been, that is not the point, uh, and we are not, uh, we have no fears of that kind, but the you're right basically means you're building up support for something on the basis of divisions, hatred, and in this case, a form of racism and discrimination that cannot be good for the social fabric. And you see more and more politicians indulging in this, um, why would we care about the social fabric? Because the people we are talking about, we would rather excise from the social fabric. That's why I think it may backfire, because having been told again and again, you're not the kind of people with the kind of values that the Conservative Party wants, which is the implicit message. Uh, and you do not want to associate with the kinds of people that the Conservative leader wants to court, then you do not go to the Conservative Party tent because it's not your kind of venue. All right. Uh, we're going to move on. Um, we've got to take a, a break. Before I do, though, I do, I do want to mention that in the, in the first 20 minutes of uh, Good Talk today, there was a moment, it, you know, it passed fairly quickly, but well, there was a moment where I thought Chantel was going to make a, you know, a, a pretty serious detour uh, in terms of her, you know, her raison d'etre. The reason why she loves these programs, why she loves talking politics. I thought... She's leaving. I can tell she's going to leave political commentary, and instead she wants to start off a fishing show. She had that wonderful description of how you don't fish in a lake where there's no fish. And Which I, is my lake at the cottage, by the way. I was thinking, I can see this new Saturday morning show, <laughs> Fishing with Chantel or Chantel Nation on the Lake. I can see it happening. I'm used to worms. I'd watch. <laughs> uh, good answer. 
Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about something else that's uh, certainly been on the agenda of late. Back in a moment. And welcome back. You're listening to Good Talk, the Friday episode of The Bridge. Bruce is in uh, Scotland. Chantal's in Montreal. I'm Peter Mansbridge in uh, Stratford, Ontario today. Um, you're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or on our YouTube channel. And welcome wherever you're listening from. Um, I would say it was probably three months ago, if you'd asked the question of the average Canadian what do you think of David Johnston? Uh, those who would actually recognize the name would probably have pretty good things to say about him. As a public servant, as a former governor general, as a well-known academic and one who's been concerned about uh, academic issues for, uh, for decades. Um, if you ask that question today, you don't get a good answer. Um, I think there, there was a poll this week that showed like 25 or 26% of Canadians um, kind of circled the word bias next to David Johnston as a result of this whole election interference inquiry and the need for a public inquiry or the not, not a need for a public inquiry. To the point this week where all the opposition parties voted together in saying David Johnston's got to go. He's got to resign. Now, I know both of you mentioned last week you thought he should really step down from uh, this role. Um, but that's quite something. And the NDP leader was kind of leading the charge on this, um, baited at times by the uh, conservative leader. But... Yeah, I don't, you know, I understand David Johnson's response, or I'm not sure I understand it, but his response was simple. My my mandate is not from the Parliament of Canada, it's from the Government of Canada. And so as I respect Parliament, but I'm not going to listen to what they want. I'm going to follow the government's desire. And so as of this moment, he's still the special rapporteur on this case. But you look at that and you say this seriously this really can't go on the man has no uh, mandate from parliament although he says he doesn't need it but the, no mandate implies no respect no belief in what he's doing and likely no belief in whatever report he ends up coming out with so what what is the path forward or is there a path forward at all for david johnston in this role. Um, Chantal, start us this time. Okay, so a, a word first on, on the vote that took place this week. Uh, four parties represented in the House of Commons and forming a majority voted for Mr. Johnston to step aside. Not all of them uh, voted, and not all MPs voted that way because they believe he's been bought by Justin Trudeau, which is literally the conservative agree, uh, argument. And I leave the conservatives to it. Uh, but for the reasons you explained, i.e. confidence in the end result uh, has been shattered. The, the appearance of uh, proximity with the government and the prime minister is too strong. But set all that aside. When a majority of parties in the House of Commons vote non-confidence in the government, the government falls. We have an election. It does not come back the next day to say, thank you for your opinion. This week, the House of Commons voted non-confidence in uh, David Johnston. That matters. It's not just an opinion. It's not a poll. It's the will of a majority of elected officials in our parliament hailing from four different parties. And the answer is, I work for the government, would be like Justin Trudeau losing a vote of confidence and saying, well, I don't have to pay attention to your absence of confidence because I answer to the people. Well, yeah, well, then you go in an election. So I have a really hard time understanding how someone who was appointed to uh, be at arm's length to restore confidence in a process and in the answers that he finds 
could think that it makes sense to continue having been voted uh, without confidence, having lost the confidence of a majority in the House of Commons. I know that's kind of old-fashioned, but I do think that uh, this it's not a joke when so many parties uh, come to the same conclusion on an exercise that is meant to restore trust and democracy. There is a, there's a, a logical fault in the reasoning of Mr. Johnston. I'm going to stick to it for your own good thing, because those parliamentarians are not children who do not understand and need daddy to tell them you don't understand what's good for you. Go back to your corner and let me be and let me be do the adult thing. But that's how I, I feel. Bruce. Well, I'm going to regret saying this probably, but uh, I'll eat your hat, Peter. If David Johnson continues down this path, I won't eat it all, but I'll, I'll eat a morsel of it and I'll show proof that I've done it. Uh, if you're willing to give that hat up, it's a nice hat, but it's not that nice. So here's what I, I think. I, I don't think there's any chance that David Johnson's position on this will stand. I don't think the government will um, over the course of time decide that this is a hill worth continuing to be pounded on. I think that once anybody gets uh, a little bit of distance and perspective from the daily bludgeoning on the government side, they'll go, what will this feel like when we start this these hearings? And every day the surround sound is Trudeau's cottage buddy, all of this kind of stuff about bias and all of the parties other than the government saying they're not comfortable with what's going on. In what way does that solve the problem that the liberal government has on the China file? It does not. It makes it worse, and it promises to continue to make it sound bad for the government for weeks or months to come. So I think I said last week that virtually every step along the way of this story, the Trudeau government at the center, has mismanaged almost every choice that they could have made, and they did it again this week. Um, They did it to the discredit or to the detriment of the interests of David Johnson. His comments suggested like he felt the same way, uh, although it's hard to understand. To Chantal's point, it's hard to understand how somebody who could have been governor general, who was governor general, and understood the relationship with parliament and government that is implicit in that role can look at a vote in the House of Commons of the nature that happened this week and go, it doesn't matter. I'm here to be the sheriff of accountability on something else. It's It boggles the mind that anybody thought that that was a reasonable position to take. In a way, the vote in Parliament, um, if the Liberals were really determined that they were going to persist with David Johnson in this role, they had to do a better job on that vote. Uh, all of a sudden, it kind of landed on Twitter. as a And look at the latest thing that happened to the government's management of this issue. And the government was left to say something that sounds exactly like what people who criticize the Trudeau government for a lack of accountability wanted to hear. It fuels their narrative. These guys don't um, care what anybody else thinks. They're just going to persist in the way that they... Yeah, so mismanage the vote, mismanage the response to the vote, put themselves again in a situation where they're probably going to have to change course. Um, uh, it's it's a mystery to me why people who had such good political judgment at different times in the life of this government could have such terrible political judgment uh, as they do on this issue right now. It, it just can't stand and keep that hat ready. Because uh, I may be wrong about this, but I I don't. What think is I will be. I think what it, what is the exit strategy? How do you do it? I I, I I I hear what you're both saying, but what do you? If you're Trudeau, what do you say? How do you do it? Well, I, we should be worried about saying anything because what if the government tries it late in the game again and manages to screw up? Because the, the David Johnston thing came two weeks after it became obvious that it should have happened. And he's probably going to be leaving if he does leave. Uh, he's already too late in leaving, uh, as is Justin Trudeau, who sounds like he 
has given the keys to his office and his decisions to someone else, and now suddenly he cannot go back in the office to change anything. He's still the prime minister last time I looked. So a way out will involve paint on somebody's shoes because the government has painted itself in a corner. I suspect that if David Johnston in the next three hours said, listen, I've talked this over and I'm going, we would not be talking about David Johnston on Monday morning. Moving on. That's right. The NDP motion was not only about David Johnson set, stepping aside. There was a second part to the motion, which was more of interest for people who are inside the bubble and into parliamentary stuff than to the larger headline-making public, uh, reading public. And it involved uh, tasking a committee uh, with putting together terms of reference and putting forward the name that all parties agree on. For a that public may inquiry. Be, for a public inquiry. That may be difficult, but it is interesting in the sense that it delegates the task to the very people who are claiming that they want to have it. Uh, and on that committee, a majority will obviously not be liberal, is not liberal. Now, that part of the motion the, the part about David Johnson does not bind the government. That is totally true. It wasn't a confidence vote. But that second part does instruct the committee to do this. It's not just words on a piece of paper that have gone into Hansard. Me, if I were the government, and I'm thankful every day for the government that I am not, because I would probably spend my days being told how much I've erred and not figured out the right solution, but I would please leave David Johnston to go do the other good things he was doing a month ago. And I would let that committee do whatever it is that it means to do and report to the House. Uh, and if they can come to a majority decision on terms of reference and some individual, I would give it a serious look and probably implement it. Because I failed to see why we need to avoid at all costs uh, an inquiry on this issue, which is certainly worth discussing and debating. Yeah, I think Chantal's right about that. I think that the uh, it would not be among the most difficult things, backtrack things that a government has done to exit the corner that it's painted itself into, Um I believe they will. I believe these things are always better done sooner rather than later. I believe it being a Friday today would be a, a, as good a day as any I can think of to get on with it. And I think it it probably would have to come from uh, David Johnson uh, himself saying that he reflected on the comments that he's been observing and the importance of the integrity of the, the topic um, is paramount to him. Um, and some people would regret that uh, because, and they would regret the damage done to his reputation along the way here. Um, some people would feel, as I do, that a lot of that has been unfair. But at the end of the day, um, for him to persist in that role would only be worse for him. Uh, it would be bad for the government. It would be bad in terms of building public confidence in the outcome of uh, public hearings or an inquiry. And... Um, and it would be smart of the government to uh, to get on to plan B about this or plan D or F or whatever it would be now because it's this one isn't working. And if the government is so confident in uh, David Johnson's early conclusions, then it has to have confidence that an inquiry would come to those same conclusions. Agreed. I'm just saying. Otherwise, how could it not? You either trust this and then you know that the process will lead you to the same place or you think you got away with whatever uh, because David Johnston didn't look in the right places and then you fear an inquiry. It's one or the other. But, uh, I mean, governments waste time holding consultations on a whole range of issues to delay decisions and suddenly we're being told that it would be a waste of time, oh my God, and resources to have an inquiry and an issue that uh, is going to be troubling this country in all kinds of ways for, for years to come. Well, if there's one thing that's clear at this point, uh, on this Friday at, uh, you know, late morning, um, 
it's that there there are lots of voices suggesting David Johnson should be stepping aside, including the two of you. Um, but there are very few voices offering the opposite. You know, you, you get the Prime Minister, you get Dominique LeBlanc. That's about it. You know, like you don't hear. There's no sort of group standing up and saying this is outrageous. I mean, a lot of people are saying this is outrageous, the kind of things that have been said about him, but not that he should stay in the job. Um, okay, we're going to take our uh, final break. We've got lots more, though, to uh, talk about. We'll do that right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to Good Talk. Bruce and Chantel are here. Um, interesting, you know, it, it's funny. We were Every once in a while we talk about polls and uh, we ended up talking about them a little bit on the Alberta election because there were conflicting polls in those last couple of weeks. Um, and we talk about value of polls, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to talk about polls, or a poll in particular, because it does have some people going, hmm, I wonder what's really going on right now on the federal scene. And the poll is uh, a Leger poll out of Quebec, but it's a national poll. And Leger has a good reputation um, across the country. And this poll would seem to suggest that, you know what? We know the Liberals have always got to be kind of worried about their position, but perhaps it's the Conservatives who should be really worried about their position right now. So walk us through uh, the numbers, Chantel, first of all, and then we'll talk about the significance of it and and how much time we should spend uh, actually thinking about it, uh, seeing as we're not in an election campaign and we're probably not likely to be in one for at least another year or two. Touch wood, if you don't want an election campaign soon, having put it so distantly into our future. Um, The first thing to say about this poll is um, that it's not very different from the outcome of the last election. It it basically tells you that if those numbers held on an election held this week, we would have a minority liberal government with a strong uh, Bloc Québécois NDP presence and a strong official opposition also. The narrative uh, that you would intuitively expect at this point is that this government has been pummeled for months uh, by the opposition. Uh, The conservatives have a fresh leader that they seem to believe will uh, work miracles for them. And yet here are the numbers you get, 33% liberal, 31% conservative, 19% NDP, and in Quebec, 34% Black Québécois. if you, uh, what that means regionally it basically is a tie in Quebec between the Bloc and the Liberals, a tie in Ontario between the Conservatives and the Liberals, and a tie in BC between the Conservatives and the Liberals. With numbers like that, Justin Trudeau can probably end up with the same government that he's got now. At this point in the cycle of the government, third term, uh, the usual fatigue you would think that uh, a number of Canadians would be itching for change. And yet, the Liberals are not really bleeding to the NDP, their ally, which is the parking lot, usually, if you're unsatisfied and you're progressive uh, with the Liberals. And they're not really bleeding massively to the Conservatives either. Consider that the Conservatives get huge majority in the rural areas where they do well in Ontario or B.C., and you look at those ties, and they're not as great as they may look at on the surface. So when you put all that together, you have to think something is holding people back from wanting change. I'll offer you one of my theories. Yes, Pierre Poilievre is working hard to keep his base totally mobilized. But in so doing, he is mobilizing people who vote for the Liberals and the NDP who would maybe at this point say, I'm disappointed or they've been in power too long and I'm going to sit on my hands. But instead, they have found a reason to live and support their party in the presence of Pierre Poilievre. I'm not saying that's a good enough argument for the liberals to go in an election and say, I'm not Pierre Poilievre, so vote for me. 
But if I were the conservatives and Pierre Poilievre, I would look at myself in the mirror looking at these numbers, and I would say, something's not working. My personal belief, if a leader like Aaron O'Toole were still around, the conservatives might be at 40% by now because the edges are a lot softer when you look at a personnel like that. And basically, people who want change are looking for a comfortable choice. Mr. Poiliev has been offering the opposite of that so far. Aaron O'Toole uh, stepping down from his uh, seat in the Commons um, in the next little while. Um, I'm, but I'm sure he'll love to hear that uh, from you, Chantal. Bruce? I think that Leger is a very well-respected company for good reason. They've had a good track record of accuracy in their polling. Um, at the same time, I think that anytime you see a poll that looks a little bit different from the others that you've seen recently, it's just a good um, it, it's it's a good caution to be careful about how much weight anybody attaches to any one poll. Um, I think that the Liberals, if they're looking at this poll as seasoned users of polls, uh, will immediately look at three numbers. Chantel mentioned all three. They'll look at Ontario and they'll see a tie and they'll like the look of that. They'll look at Quebec and they'll see a tie and they'll really like the look of that. But more than anything else, they'll look at those BC numbers, which stand different from uh, several recent polls and position them as competitive with the Conservatives. Um it, it, they'll wonder whether or not they can trust the sample size in that province. They'll want to see more evidence before believing that it's true. Um, but as uh, you and I and Chantal were talking about a little bit before we went on air, sometimes the attitudes towards provincial parties can bleed into the way that people respond to polls about federal parties and the and the support that exists for the BC NDP uh, is significant and could have been uh influencing the, the the previous numbers in a way that makes them a little bit less accurate than this. I don't know that that's true. I want to see more data. But um, I would also agree, though, with Chantel's point that if you're the Conservatives, whether you believe this set of numbers exactly or the others, you're not seeing the breakthrough. Um, and the reason you're not seeing the breakthrough is that, well, I think that there are some days when Pierre Polyev talks about issues that people are really concerned about in ways that they can feel they can relate to, whether it's housing uh, or others. There are other days when he seems to um, into himself, into the politics of himself, into the politics of uh, Pierre Polyev for prime minister, into the uh, destruction of his political rivals all things which generally don't increase um, your overall vote number, but generally kind of motivate your base. Now, it's possible, I suppose, that if one wanted to uh, to look at it and say, well, maybe he's, he's willing to uh, put up with a ceiling on his support in the near term because he really wants to extinguish Max Bernier from the political landscape, and there's an opportunity coming up in a by-election to, uh, to help with that. But I think that's probably giving him a little bit too much um, credit. Uh, I, I think his instincts naturally have proven over the years to be much more of a, a partisan pugilist than the average Canadian likes to see. And that's probably in part uh, tempering the level of support that the Conservatives have, because uh, I also agree with Chantel that the Liberals are, are quite vulnerable uh, to a sense of fatigue and drift. You know, there was um, an interesting point made the other night on the Alberta election by Janet Brown, who's the, the Calgary-based pollster, who has a, uh, also a very good reputation, seemed to be on the numbers in this election campaign. <laughs> Excuse me. But she was asked by the questioner, why, you know, what is it about the conservative vote? What's the challenge in trying to, to gauge the conservative vote when you're a pollster? And she had an interesting answer. She said, listen, if, for starters, she does all her polling by phone. She does telephone polling. And she said to get to get through to the conservative vote, sometimes you have to be really persistent. You have to keep phoning because they don't answer. And she said, I've you know, called conservative voters four or five times before I get somebody on the line. And I said, and she said, and if you don't do that, you are going to, you can't help but under, uh, end up underestimating the conservative vote. 
And that was her theory as to why there were some differences between the polls. I'm just wondering, is that an Alberta thing or is that sort of commonly known uh, in the polling business that you have to be more, a lot more persistent in trying to get to the conservative vote if you're, when you're polling? Bruce? Well, it hasn't or, stopped uh, Léger and other pollsters from calling the last few elections, right? So I, I'm not convinced. Um, just to bring you back to this poll, if I were the Liberals, I would be concerned by the Quebec numbers and the tie with the Bloc in Quebec, because what that basically means is the Conservatives are leaking votes to the Bloc. And a stronger vote for the Bloc means that those splits that they need between the Conservatives and the, the Bloc to win seats in Francophone Quebec are disappearing. And clear, the Bloc is working for Poilievre, even as Poilievre is doing poorly in Quebec, uh, by taking that Conservative vote and coalescing it uh, as an opposition vote behind the, the Bloc Québécois. But the other concern that I've seen, from you talked about the Alberta election this week, was I looked at how the Conservatives had fared uh, provincially in Edmonton, which they completely lost, and Calgary, where they lost a lot of ground. And I started adding up big Canadian cities. The Conservatives don't do well in Vancouver. They don't do well in Montreal. They don't do well in Winnipeg. They don't do well in Toronto. They don't do well in Halifax. And provincially in Alberta, they don't do well in uh, Edmonton, and they do increasingly poorly in Calgary. That is not a good trend and a good look for the federal party because you – you and they, you, they can always say, well, all the wokes live in, in those cities and we get the suburbs, but I don't think it's that simple. Uh, and certainly that's not what we saw in the Alberta election. And if I were them, instead of looking at Danielle Smith, one, despite the fact that she was a polarizing leader, uh, they should look at receding support in Canada's big cities because that does not bode well for the future of the party. And that's why, by the way, I will not be watching Portage Lisker, where Maxime Bernier is running, but I will be watching Winnipeg South Center and those by-elections because it's a writing that Stephen Harper won when he had a majority in 2011. And if Poilievre's not going to win Quebec, he needs to win those non-Quebec writings that Harper won. Yeah, I mean, it's the story of Canada, right? The urban-rural split. It's been... You know, at varying degrees, that urban-rural split has has been dominant for years, decades, uh, in in Canadian voting, with the odd exception when there's a blowout uh, majority. Uh, Bruce, uh, some thoughts on this? Yeah. So on uh, on the challenges of getting the right proportion of the right of the different kinds of voters in polling, it's a big challenge. Um, Janet Brown uses phone. Um, it isn't the only way to try to solve for it. Um, it obviously, her solution uh, worked out remarkably well this time and has generally. But um, w- with those who are using online polling, the other forms of adjusting your results to make sure that you don't underrepresent uh, younger male conservative voters, for example, um, most firms are doing something uh, along those lines. The second thing, maybe the bigger issue, is trying to anticipate whose votes are going to actually turn out. And this is the mystery meat of uh, of polling. And there's uh, some science around it, um, but there's always a measure of guesswork. And the guesswork is partly because the context for so many elections is different. Um, and that there are some elections where you will feel that the urban change uh, sentiment is really supercharged and the turnout's going to be really strong there. And there are others where you might feel young people should be motivated but aren't going out in the same numbers. And 2015 is much remembered as an example of what happens when more younger people do go out. All of which is to say it's a bit of a soup and science can solve some of it. an informed uh, guesswork based on experience, I guess, uh, can help. But, um, you know, I, I still look at those numbers and I kind of go, well, for all of the the butt kicking that polling gets sometimes, there's a lot of pretty accurate polling that, that was done in Alberta. And, uh, and people consume it because it's useful information. I know there's some who say, well, we should just 
stopped doing it. And Peter, you've always had this kind of schizophrenic <laughs> kind of relationship with polling. Like every time also, you want to talk yeah. about polling, you have to say three or four times how gruesome yeah, it's like alcohol. It is. Yeah. I don't, I don't drink too much, uh, but too where much. is that wine? <laughs> yeah, a little bit right now. Yeah. Um, okay. We got uh, a minute and a half left. Um, Portage Lisger, um, Chantel said she's going to take a pass on worrying about those results and, and focus more on the Winnipeg riding, and I understand that. Uh, but Polyev is actually out there tonight, Friday night, in Manitoba. So they must be confident that they will hold and improve their score on Benny and the riding, is my reading of this uh, visit by Pierre Poilier. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody ever thought right. that the, the, the Bernier could win, but where, how many votes he attracts could make a difference, right? I think they want to spike the ball. I think Chantal's right. I think that um, it started out to me as, uh, why is Max Bernier doing this, except he needs the job or something like that, because the chances of him coming out with a good story, let alone a seat uh, in the House of Commons, seems almost nil to me. Um and I say that in part because Pierre Polyev has been eating the People's Party lunch uh, since he became leader, in fact, since before that. And Max Bernier has been almost uh, invisible, um, except within that small cadre of people who are connected by the filament of the Internet. Um, but, you know, even in the, the, the story I was reading yesterday about this, uh, you know, the the... People's Party raised three hundred thousand dollars in a quarter. The Conservative Party raised something like six million. Uh, this is a battle of uh, of a giant saying more or less the same things to voters as the mouse is. And uh, I don't like the mouse's chance. And I think if I was Polyev, I'm going there because I want people to on the on the other side of this say he won. He 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 helped claim the victory. And uh, Max Bernier is a name we don't need to talk about anymore. Okay, we're going to have to leave it at that for uh, for this week. Uh, thanks to Chantel. Thanks to Bruce. Good luck with the fishing show, Chantel. We'll look forward to that. And, um, and we'll look forward to talking to you on Monday. Special Moore Butts conversation, number nine. You're going to enjoy it. We touched on some of the elements of it today, uh, but we'll touch on a lot more on Monday. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again on Monday.